Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. I was not anticipating the prayer. You got me all emotional now. Thank you for that. Uh, good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, again, in a relatively short time, it was super encouraging for me to be with you on your retreat just a couple weeks ago, and a privilege to be uh, here this morning preaching the second sermon of Advent. Um, so, very thankful and, uh, and honored and privileged. Like Matt said, um, we've known each other now going on five years or so, and uh, it's interesting how like good times in life really like cause you to deepen relationships, but really it's in the trenches, right, where you, you really, like, latch onto each other because it's, like, God's given you the church and friendship for a reason, and it's oftentimes when you go through those difficult trials that you find out what those reasons are for, and so that's been the Boyd family for me. Um, you know this already, but you have a, a good pastor in Matt, and so you guys should, uh, should breathe easy, be thankful to the Lord for what he's given you. Uh, and Matt, and we also know that when I say that, I'm, I'm putting a huge asterisk on his wife, Andrea, who really is the one that we should be thankful for, um, and for his boys, and you should be praying often for this family. Uh, pray for Matt and the boys while Andrea is in Argentina now. Uh, Andrea, the boys are here and dressed. <laughs> you should know that. Uh, so as we continue this morning... Uh, in our series, uh, the Advent series, uh, we're looking at, uh, like Matt has said, a, a people prepared. And how is that going to happen? What, what do we need to prepare for or from? And, and how does that preparation take place? Um, Advent really just comes from the Latin word meaning coming. And so traditionally, this is the time of year where we look uh, towards the day that we call Christmas, where we, we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus, right? Uh, and his first coming, we, we now look back to that day when he came as a baby. And now as believers, as the church gathered, we look forward to his second coming uh, when he will come not as a lowly baby in a manger, but he will come as the, the ruler, the king, the one who is in control of all things, and all things will be put under his control at that time. And so uh, we have lots of reasons to celebrate this morning and to anticipate the coming of our Messiah. So that's why we like prepare our hearts uh, for this season and why we use kind of the church calendar and this, this time called Advent. So again, uh, if you're taking notes, this would be kind of my main kind of uh, sermon, uh, central text or central theme of the sermon this morning as we'll be looking at what is needed of us in order to be part of the group of people who get to spend eternity with God in the new earth. So we'll be looking at what is needed of us in order to be part of that group of people who get to spend eternity with God in the new earth. A shortened or more uh, direct way of saying that would be this morning we look at how the coming Messiah, Jesus, will make us a people prepared. We're going to look at how the the coming Messiah, Jesus, will make us a people prepared. So Luke writes uh, about the birth of Jesus. Uh, in the first 
part of chapter 1. Uh, you guys have looked at that already. And this morning we're going to now see how he prepares his people for the coming Messiah through an, another pregnancy. So we had the miraculous pregnancy uh, foretold about Mary, who was going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, who would take on human flesh. And this morning we have this different story, but miraculous nonetheless, of this family related to Mary, Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. And this is a miracle, not because the Holy Spirit was going to allow uh, another woman to conceive and, and, and have a child, but because this family was old, <laughs> well past childbearing years, it says in Scripture. And so Elizabeth is, is someone who has been barren. She doesn't have kids up until this point, and, and now she's approached by an angel who says, you will actually have a child, right? So if you haven't uh, already turned there, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 57. And uh, I'm going to read the entire passage uh, from the beginning here, and then we'll look at, stay with me, okay? We'll look at seven points. Now, some of them are only like two lines, okay? But I'm also going to preach really long, so when Matt gets up here next week, you'll feel relieved and like, love your pastor. And that. No, we're going to look at seven points, and really the first three are going to kind of prepare us for Zechariah's kind of song of praise that we'll see in the last section that we'll read this morning. Um, so you can follow along with me, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, and we'll read through the end of the chapter to verse 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our Lord, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his appearance, uh, uh, until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father God, would you be with us this morning? Might your word have its way and full effect in our hearts, in our minds, making us, showing us, shaping us into the image of your son, Jesus, that we might be a people prepared and ready for you. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. All right, so point number one I want us to see in the text, starting right in the very first verse that I read, verse 57, is that God always fulfills his promises. Point number one, God always fulfills his promises. Verse 57 says again, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. If you were to go back and read earlier in Luke, you would see exactly what I was talking about, that Elizabeth was advanced in years, her and her husband Zechariah have long since conceded that they were just going to be people who had great things to do in this world, but one of them would not be parenthood. Uh, they no doubt had tried. I'm sure they wanted children. Uh, in that day and age, uh, to be a mother was kind of the epitome, the, the, the highest reach of what a woman could be. And then for a, a man, that was like, what you long for to continue your lineage, to continue your heritage, uh, someone to carry on your namesake. And so they had wanted children. That's actually obvious from the interaction that uh, Zechariah had with the angel when he was told that they would have a child. And for all their married lives, they, they had probably desired and continuously settled in their hearts that they were just not going to have children as part of their story. That is until God chose to write a child into their story. It seemed ridiculous to Zechariah. I mean, his response when the angel told him that was a response that, honestly, I probably would, probably would have as well. <laughs> but it was one completely devoid of faith. Like the angel of the Lord is telling Zechariah, you will have a child. Your wife is going to bear a son. And Zechariah's lack of faith just would not allow that truth to actually enter into his heart or his mind. And for his lack of faith, God actually disciplines him. He shuts his mouth. And for the next season of time, Zechariah was unable to speak. So my friend, soldier in church, might I encourage you this morning, what God says he will do, even when it seems impossible. His written word, the scriptures are filled with promises showing time and time again ways that he will care for his people, ways that he will provide for his people. He will do every one of those, right? It's more certain than any other certainty that we have in this life. Every single one of God's words, God's promises, will come to pass. When God says that you are loved by him, you can trust Regardless of your past mistakes, or your present shortcomings, or the failures that you will guarantee to have happen today, your foibles don't compromise the lavish love of God. In 1 John chapter 3, the very first verse, it's like this exclamation point put on the passage to see the lavish love that God has poured out on us. It's this picture of like a five-gallon bucket of water just being dumped on someone's head. This just 
gushing forth of love pouring out. And that is God's love towards you and towards me and towards all of creation. He desires that none should perish, that no one should die apart from him. There's nothing that you can do that would not cause him to fulfill his promise of love being poured out to his people. When God promises to care for you, he certainly can and will. Your present job situation does not dampen God's abilities to give you good and perfect gifts. I'm a living example of that right now. I should not be making it important. And yet God continues to provide and allow me to be He's the one who cares for the lowly sparrow, Scripture talks about. I mean, the, little, the littlest of birds. He knows those by name. Right? He goes on to, to say that he knows every hair on your head. He, he knows you intimately. He cares deeply about you. Is there anybody else in all the world that knows you that well and still loves you? Right? Like, most of the time, people get to know me more and more. I'm like, eesh. Yeah. Hope they don't find this out and this, you know. God holds both perfectly. He knows us more and better than we know ourselves, and he loves us more and better than we love ourselves. That is the good God that we serve. So when God says things, they will come to pass. Let this promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth about them conceiving a son be yet another reminder in Scripture that what seems impossible with God is simply not. He makes the impossible possible. Secondly, second point, and this is a hard one, but it's true. God wants to use your sorrows to show his mercy to others. Point number two, God wants to use your sorrows to show his mercy to others. No doubt that mercy will be extended to you, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He wants it to go through you to other people. Verses 58 and 65 talk about this effect that uh, the, the people around, surrounding Zechariah and Elizabeth, the effect that their mercy that God's shown them has on these people Verse 58 says, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And then verse 65, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Many people get pregnant every day, right? Sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's anticipated. It's, it's a miracle each and every time. I mean, scientifically, like I was a, a pre-med student way before I did pastoral ministry and now construction. I love the human body, the way it's put together and the intricacies of it. And it is a miracle every time that a baby is conceived. No doubt, children, they're a precious gift from God. I've got four of them. I love them. But there is an exclamation point added to Elizabeth's story and maybe to your story. When a child is finally born after the parents have experienced the crushing blow of a miscarriage. 
maybe after years of being unable to have that dream fulfilled of having a child, right? This sorrow builds within the person something that they otherwise would not have once the baby finally comes. Again, for her entire childbearing years, decade, two decades maybe, like 20 plus years, this woman's been longing, looking, wanting, seeing other people's kids run around. And for, for lots of years, she has had this sorrow just in her heart that she's continually having to take to God and allow Him to comfort her in her sadness. Zechariah, I mean, he carried the prestigious title of priest. But he had long since settled the idea that he would ever hear the, what I would say, one of the best words in all of life, Dada. To hear a little boy or girl call you that, that to me is better than any business card I've ever had with any title on it. He had settled in his heart. She had settled in her heart. But little did they know that God was working all of their agony and pain, and frustration, and sorrow, and sadness. He was putting all of those things together for their good and for His glory. And that's exactly what God does with us. He builds within us. He weaves that tapestry together for our good, ultimately, but also for His glory. When news broke out that Elizabeth was going to have a baby, the entire region knew and celebrated. And just think about it. Like, had she had other kids up until that point, and then they had this son, John, I mean, people would have been like, oh, okay, that's good, you know? Our first child, whenever we had Kate, my oldest, I mean, people drove to North Carolina, there were lots of gifts, we had diapers for years, you know, like, so much stuff was given. By the time Maddox, our fourth child, came, people were like, again? And they're like, can't he just reuse the stuff that Kate had and the other two boys had? You know? It, it's this, it, it happens. Like, you, you just have this anticipation build. And while it might not be a child for you, yeah, I'm sure you can relate. Like, times in your life where you've experienced deep sadness, a longing for something. And in time, If you allow God to, He can actually use that to build something really beautiful in your life. He can take literally, right, like think about the the fertilizer that we put on our gardens. He can take the cow dung of our lives and, and cause beautiful fruit to come out of it in time. Oftentimes, though, we we don't make it there because we we like short circuit God's plan or we like try to try to make things work our own own way or we we just kind of abandon him or push him aside because of our sorrows. Now, to be sure, like our sorrows will do one of two things. They will either warm our hearts towards God and cause us to, to see his goodness even in the difficulties. That's not to diminish what's happening, but it they, they both will coincide together where it pushes us towards him or our sorrows will harden our hearts towards the ways of God and will cause us to actually grow embittered, discontent, disillusioned, frustrated. 
May the, the long sorrow of Zechariah and Elizabeth for you this morning work to encourage your heart and draw your eyes towards the mighty God who is in absolute control of all things. May you see that he is weaving, even now, the dark threads of your life. He's weaving them together to show with greater clarity and to contrast the beautiful light who is our Savior, Jesus. Light shines best in the darkness. Trust Him in your sorrows. He can be trusted. And He does desire to use all things in your life, the good and the bad, for his glory and for your ultimate good. He cares deeply about you. Point number three. Our trials, it kind of goes hand in hand with point number two. Our trials will work to embolden us to speak of God's greatness. Even in the face of opposition. Point number three. And then we'll actually get into Zechariah's uh, prophetic praise to God. Point number three, one more time, our trials will work to embolden us to speak of God's greatness even in the face of opposition. Let me explain. Look with me at verses 59 through 64. I'll read them again. It says, On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So their neighbors, their relatives have gathered for what seems to be Jewish custom, uh, where on the eighth day of a boy's birth, they would gather, they would circumcise him, and they would name him. Right? So this child is nameless up, up until day eight. And so Elizabeth already has in her mind and heart and ear right, that the angel of the Lord had told her husband that you're going to name this baby John. So she gives him his assigned name, John. Right? No question in her mind. Her relatives, however, must have been kin to mine. They, they see Elizabeth's need for some unsolicited advice on how to name kids. Right? Clearly, she's a newbie at this. She might be old in age, but she's never had a kid. We need to help her. Elizabeth, you don't just go off script. You don't name your baby whatever you want. But you know how this works? Right? This is your one shot to carry the family name, to make this person matter. In case you haven't noticed, by the way, John is not some shortened version of Zechariah. So what are you doing? Right? And in verse 60 that I just read, we actually see that Elizabeth has to correct the people. They're already calling him Zach Jr. Right? And she's like, no, no, no. That's not going to be his name. His name's going to be John. At this point, Elizabeth 
you can see that something has happened in her heart through the long years of sorrow and now the promise being fulfilled that she will have a child. She is no longer leaning on her, her own understanding, her own uh, you know, mental capacity to, to put together what the physical body should and should not do. She is operating now knowing and leaning on her Savior, on God himself. Her decade-plus-long trial of barrenness has taught her this valuable lesson that her life is not her own. And sojourn, neither is yours. Your life is not your own. She lived for someone else. Her Lord had captured her heart, and He was now calling the shots in her life. And it was her great joy to let Him do that. Well, those present aren't satisfied yet. They still have a lesson to learn, right? They appeal to Elizabeth's husband because she's like, no, his name's going to be John. They're like, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Call dad. Surely. really make a splash either way, not really cause anyone to be upset with me, not, you know. But we see that the discipline of God, the good discipline of God has actually taken its full effect, not only in Elizabeth's heart, but also in Zechariah's. He's willing to step up and to do what needs to be done. So he asked for a writing tablet. He's like, I can't speak, I can't hear, but I can write. Find me something to write with, right? They bring him a tablet, and literally in the, in the original language, it says, John, his name shall be. It's like he's emphasizing, don't miss this, right? His name's going to be John. <laughs> I'm going to spell it for you. You're going you're gonna to see it in bold and underlined and italics and stars around it. This is going to be this little kid's name. It's not going to be my namesake. It's going to be the name that God has given him. John shall be his name. Zacharias' sorrow, discipline, had worked to warm his heart towards the things of God. And God in his mercy, which is a theme that's repeated throughout this chapter and throughout the book of Luke, in his mercy, he's now released Zechariah's voice, <coughs> unclogged his ears, and we see that praise comes pouring out of Zechariah. Like, he cannot talk fast enough about all the ways that God is good and worthy and holy. He's worshiping right there on the, on the day of circumcision and name calling. He's just looking forward to worshiping God. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And then look again at verse 66. It says, All who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Do you see the turn there? Just moments ago, we have this whole group of people, relatives and friends and neighbors. They're all pushing for their own agenda. They want this kid named a certain thing. They're concerned about the circumcision and the naming of this child. And now in these verses, we see everyone's eyes are pointing towards who? You can say it. Towards God. 
Yeah, they're, they've shifted now, right? Let me just say it again. All who heard laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this shall be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The, the pain, the sorrow, the frustrations, they're all now being made clear and clearer. It's working something out in these people's lives. That they might see this is not about this boy John. This is about something greater than John. This is about the coming Messiah. Those who hear the words of Elizabeth and, and see the words of Zechariah, they laid them up in their hearts. In other words, they took the words of Elizabeth and Zechariah to heart. They really, they really heard them this time, right? Not, they didn't think they were no longer, you know, like just newbies, not understanding what's going on. Maybe they're confused. Maybe the pains of childbirth are still wearing on with Elizabeth. No, like they, they are now hearing that this is all about God. The persistent following of God by Zechariah and Elizabeth actually leads others to see the glory of God. Even in the face of opposition, they remain steadfast, strong, doing the things that they knew God had called them to do, and it worked out so that others would see the goodness of God. Zechariah then launches into this prayer of praise, blessing God in this prophetic praise, this worship that he says in the remaining verses. And so I'll read them for us uh, again and then we'll look just quickly at kind of four ways that this salvation is going to take place, how it's going to prepare us to be a people for God. So in verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Son shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah begins this worship song, this prophecy by saying the Lord God of Israel should be blessed because he has, in his mercy, visited and redeemed his people. He's prophesying, as stated in verse 67, about how God is working out this plan of salvation. We've seen it from of old. It just goes all the way back to the beginning of time, and all these prophets of the Old Testament have been declaring that something's going to happen in the future. They, they didn't even have a full, clear picture of what it was. They just knew that something was going to happen. God was bringing forth salvation in some way. Now, the mercy of God means salvation and worship for the people of Israel. 
Right? God's mercy, his kindness, the New Testament writers would say, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. His mercy means salvation and worship. So we'll look this morning, we'll close our time together by pointing out four aspects of this great salvation that has been offered to us through God's mercy. Aspect number one, it's a strong salvation. You can reference back verses 68 through 71. Zechariah uses the imagery of a horn of salvation. The picture draws on that of an animal horn. Probably uh, that part of the world would have been like the mighty ram, right? from which they take their horns and create these chauffeurs, and they blow them like bugles. Right? It's a salvation that's withstood the test of time. It's been in the work since the prophets of old, like I said. The mercies of God have continued to march forward, even using those who would seek to snuff it out to actually work for God's good. <laughs> like People have risen up in, in times past, and they thought they were going to put to death Christianity and God's promises, and God's actually used those very people to continue moving his plan forward. Nothing can stop our God. Nothing can stop our God. Not your mistakes, nor mine. Nothing can hinder him. That should, that should cause us to breathe easy this morning. Knowing that we are being used by God, and he will work to make all of our life, the goods, the bads, the pros, the cons, the things we can bring to the table, and things we wish we could throw in the dump. He'll use all of that. But he can, and he will. Listen to these couple verses that talk about the, the powerful nature of God's salvation. Zephaniah 3, 17. If you need an encouragement ever on what God thinks or feels about you, you should write this verse down. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's our God. Right? He's with you. Whatever you find yourself walking through, he is mighty to save. He rejoices over you. You're worth rejoicing over. He counts you as a friend. He loves you. He will quiet you by his love. Have you ever felt completely like frantic and out of control? Life is going all which sort of ways, and you just need someone to, to grab you by the shoulders and say, take a breath. It's going to be okay. Just breathe. I'm here for you. That's what God does in his love for us. And it says he will exult over you with loud singing. So in those moments when you need him to raise his voice, he will. <laughs> and he will sing over you, praising you. Proverbs 21, verse 1. This is one of my favorite verses when, when I think about the sovereignty of God and how he's able to use all things for his good. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart, so think of the like, the strongest, most powerful person that you know of who would seem to have all the control in their hands, right? Maybe, maybe the president of our, of our country, right? The king's heart, it says, 
as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You think that Joe Biden's leading this country. You think that you're in control of your life. Kings thought that they were ruling over their nation. And we are all just like streams of water. And I kind of get this picture in my head. Every, every summer we go to the, to the uh, east coast on vacation to the beach. And a lot of times we'll build a sandcastle. And then we'll dig out this trench so that the, the water can kind of flow in and fill up the moat around it, you know. And it's, God's hand is just like that shovel that we use to dig the trench out to the ocean. Like he just turns our lives and our hearts wherever he wants them to go. It's a strong salvation that God offers. Aspect number two, it's a purposed salvation. You can see that in verses 72 through 75. God's salvation is meant to lead us to worship. God offered physical deliverance, to be sure, to the people of Israel. But it was more than just a physical deliverance. God freed Israel from their bondage and sin so that they might serve him in righteousness. Don't miss this. God cares more about your spiritual healing and freedom than he does about your physical healing or freedom. Our physical is temporal. Our spiritual is eternal. Right? He cares much more about the, the long-term you, the part that matters most, your spiritual. He does care about your physical, to be sure. And he created that as well. He loves you. He cares deeply about your physical body. But he cares much about your spiritual self. Aspect number three. I told you I'd go through these quickly. Aspect number three, a defining salvation. It's a defining salvation. Verses 76 and 80 kind of point this out. Uh, Zechariah connects his son's purpose. So, so in the prophecy, Zechariah begins to talk about his son but it's encapsulated in this idea that John's going to do something for the greater person, and that is Jesus, right? And John would live that out. I mean, you, you continue reading, when John steps onto the scene, I mean, he's like, uh, one commentator said, he's like a giant index finger pointing to Jesus, right? <laughs> he's like, I'm, I'm going to be nothing. I'm going to wear weird clothes and sandals and eat bugs from the ground because I don't want anything that I do to even come closely remotely close to appearing like I'm trying to take the spotlight from Jesus. And Zechariah, he's prophesying this over his son, John. He's saying this, this is going to be your purpose in life. It's going to be wrapped up in who Jesus is. So let me ask you, could it be said of your life that you are defined by the great salvation that God has offered you? Like John, could it be said of your life that your life is defined by the great salvation that God has offered to you? No doubt. I mean, John would grow to do many other things. I'm sure he learned how to walk and ride a bicycle if they had them and, you know, play baseball or whatever other great things. But none of that stuff got recorded in Scripture because none of that comes close to comparing to his ultimate purpose. And that was to be the index finger pointing to Jesus. And then lastly, aspect number four, possibly the most important, it's a peace-giving salvation. 
It's a peace-giving salvation. You can see that in verses 77 through 79. Let me ask you a question. Think about this. You don't have to answer it out loud. What do you think you're saved from when God saves you? What do you think you're saved from when God saves you? In my studies, preparing for this morning, I was kind of hit with this. Romans 5, verse 9, says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, talking about Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The Bible teaches that we are born into sin, and that sin is a violation of God's design for our lives. It's a direct affront. It's an open defiance against the one who is merciful and has shown us his love in the person of Jesus. If you have not surrendered your life to God by placing your trust in him, you, you simply do not have peace because peace comes from God and you have set yourself up in opposition to the peace giver. Your greatest need is not to be saved from your sin. Your greatest desire and hope is not to be saved from yourself. Your greatest need is to be saved from the perfectly righteous, completely holy, all-knowing, ultimate God of the universe, the one who is over all things, who has created all things, including you and me, the one who is righteous. He is the one who you have sinned against, and you need salvation from him. Because scripture does speak to his mercy and his kindness, and it is because of his law, uh, uh, delaying of the coming of Jesus for the second time that actually continues to show him being merciful and kind. But don't get this wrong. Wrapped up in that merciful, kind, loving, gentle, and lowly Savior is also a perfectly righteous, holy, and judgmental God in the sense that he will come to judge the living and the dead to separate out what has been done in error and in truth. And you will not, and I will not be able to escape that lest we put our hope and our trust in Jesus. You and I need salvation from God's wrath. That's a hard truth to let sink in. It, it flies in the face. I recognize that of what, what we would say is true in our culture. It puts us... Quite, and this is why, right? It puts us in a position of being needy. Because if we're just needing to be saved from our sin, then guess what? I can work to save myself out of my sin. I can do enough good things. I can be this type of person. I can work hard enough at my job. But once it's removed from myself, my little sphere, my little world of being, and it's put out into the realm of I've directly attacked and my sin has been an affront against the God of the universe, 
That's a whole different story. I'm now at, at the complete mercy of whatever this creator says and does. And that is completely unnerving to people, but it's completely biblical and true. Again, you can see that in, in Romans 5.9, but all throughout Scripture you can see how God is merciful and kind, but He is also a God who judges, who comes with truth. And His second coming, Jesus will come with a sword, right, to divide those who belong to Him and those who don't. Our sinful opposition to God, it deserves punishment. And Scripture would teach that that punishment ultimately is death that we deserve. But Jesus has come that we might have life. He has come to actually, uh, and has, right? Like lived on this earth. He came just as the prophet said, just as the angel said to Mary. He came, John, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, would be the big forerunner for Jesus. Jesus pointing the finger, look, this is the Messiah. Jesus came, he lived on this earth, a sinless life, the, the way that we should have lived, Jesus actually did accomplish. And then he died a death that we deserved. He took our place. The punishment of our sin was, was laid on his shoulders. And actually the wrath of God was placed on his son Jesus. So Jesus became this propitiation, right? big fancy word. He, he actually became this person who stood in our stead, who, who took our place, died a, a real death. And then if that isn't crazy enough, he not only died a real death, but then he turned around and defeated the very death itself that had taken him to the grave. And he rose again. We celebrate that. We, we say that as believers, we believe in a resurrected Jesus. He is not still in the tomb somewhere in the Middle East. He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he is holding all things together by the word of his power. So this morning, if you have not placed your trust in that good God, who is merciful and longing to save all people, if you've not experienced this peace that Zechariah prophesies about, that he... Jesus has offered, then I would love to talk with you afterwards and show you how you can actually enter into that relationship with God, be reconciled back to Him. Right? Our, our sin has separated us from Him, and Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled back. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, thank you for being a God who is merciful and kind. Thank you for the truth found in Luke chapter 1 that you, you have been the one who, who says that we have to be prepared, we have to do what is right, and then in your kindness you knew that we could not do what was right, we could not be prepared for you, and so you again in your mercy sent Jesus to do the very things that we needed to have done. Jesus is the answer. He is the one who prepares our hearts. He's the one who opens our minds and our, our hearts back up to you and reconciles us to you. And we're so grateful for that reconciling work, for that salvation that has been offered. I pray this morning that your word would have its full effect in our hearts, as it did with Zechariah and Elizabeth 
and their neighbors and their relatives. Might our eyes be open this morning from the preaching of your word to see your goodness. And might it lead us to worship you. Today, not only in singing these songs that Ben will lead us in in just a moment, but as we go out, might our lives be a worshipful event pointing people to your goodness. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.